0: as we turn our hearts to God's word this morning, we're going to continue in our, our study of 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 3, and we're getting down to the we, um, the last remaining um, words of Paul to this young church, and uh, as i mentioning prayer, continue to pray for Israel. He's recovering from a little surgery he had last Friday, and good to see you here, brother, and just pray that you'll be 100% back to normal. But as we look at Second um, Thessalonians chapter 3, we introduced this last week, and like I said, we didn't get through any of the outline other than uh, what I put in there uh, as an introduction. <laughs> and we had a lot going on last week. But we're, we're looking at these last remaining verses that the Apostle Paul has to say to this church at Thessalonica in chapter 3. And last week we looked at the biblical view of work. It's almost like he throws this idea about working in here and it kind of catches you off guard because he's talking about the return of Christ, he's talking about the Antichrist, all this stuff, the rapture, and then all of a sudden he starts talking about work. But we saw that it fits pretty well and we'll continue to see that today. But we said when we're talking about work, a lot of us look at it as a drudgery, a lot of us look at it as something other than what the biblical view of work is. And last week we said that God exalted work by commanding it. He commanded us to work. Um, Just the mere fact that he gave us six days of rest, or one day of rest, has the idea, we'd like to have six days of rest, wouldn't we? (laughs) That's our idea of work. One day of rest indicates that he gave us six days to work. And we also said that God sets the example in the triune God. God works, Jesus Christ works, the Holy Spirit works in different aspects, and we looked at all that last week. And we said that work is a normal part of our existence. Some people think, well, we wouldn't have to work if it wasn't for Adam and Eve in the fall. No, we still would have worked. Adam had to work. He worked in the garden. It's just that sin brought about the toil of work. I think his gardening skills were rather enjoyable probably before he had to toil, in the dirt, but before that, it was enjoyable. Yesterday, I tried to enjoy myself out, pulling some weeds out of our front flower beds and stuff, and uh, trying to get motivated to plant something. We were over at somebody's house last week, and just beautiful backyard, and I thought, wow, I got to get with it. So it gave me a little motivation. My wife was pleased she drove off to the nail salon or wherever she was going. <laughs> Have fun. <laughs> that was all right. I just kept on remembering work is a normal part of man's existence, and I even reminded myself that work is a gift of God. He gives us the ability, the joy of having a job, of working. And we said the biblical work ethic affirms that all work can be elevated above the mundane by being done for the Lord himself. It doesn't matter whether you're working in the home as a caretaker or a homemaker or you're working at a job or you're volunteering, whatever work you're doing, it should be done as what? As on the Lord. The Bible says that very clearly. And so as we look at our, our text today, and I'm not going to read through the whole text, but we're going to start there in verse 6, and we're going to basically look at five things. We'll probably look at three of them today and, and two of them in the closing words, the benediction next week, and then we'll be done with this book, this letter. But we're going to deal with five things. And the first one is this problem which existed among the Thessalonian believers. There was a problem that Paul had to address, and it existed there. And we see it drawn out for us here in verse 6. What is the problem? He says in verse 6, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, look at, that you keep away from any brother or sister by implication— Who is walking in idleness, the ESV says, and not in accord with the tradition that you have received from us. And then down in verse 7, it says, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle. There's that word again. Or in verse 11, Paul brings it up again. He says, for we hear that some among you walk in, what, idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. That that Greek phrase, walking in idleness, or walking in a, we could say, a a disorderly manner, a tactos in the original language, it combines two words. It it combines the idea of a word that means to set in order with a negative in front of it. That's what the little A there is in front of it. Uh, It comes to mean neglectful of your duties, uh, it means to break ranks. That's one definition of it. Think of soldiers. I remember in ROTC when I was in college, I was joined Army ROTC. It was fun. You know, you just kind of play soldier for, for a while. And we, we'd have to learn a march, and we were out on this hot parking lot, pavement, dressed in our uniforms, and, you know, for about two minutes it was a lot of fun, and then it got real boring. You know, laugh, right, left right, you know. About face, go back the other way. He just kept on doing it and doing it. And I remember one guy said, I'm done. I'm not going to do this. And he said, oh, you want to quit? Fine. He wants to quit. Guess what? You're not going to do 50 push-ups or whatever it was. We all had to pay. And, and they, what they do? He stepped out of rank. He said, I'm not going to do this. It means to behave irregularly. Um, those who are are marching in rank, and somebody says, it's not that you miss a step. It's not that you're stepping right when everybody else is saying left. But it literally means to break rank. Like, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm tired. I'm just going to sit down. And you pay for it. It's also translated to behave irregularly, to do something weird or out of sync with what a believer should be doing in their Christian walk. So the word idleness just doesn't cut it. I, I think the ESV kind of missed it there. Uh, sometimes it's good in the original language, if you want to know what a word means, to look at the antonym, to look at what the opposite of that word is. It's kind of fun to do, actually, sometimes. This is, is basically the opposite of this. The, the exact opposite of this word, walking in idleness or walking in a disorderly manner, is, guess what, to obey authority to submit to authority. That's the opposite of this word. So apparently, they had an issue. There was somebody who was refusing to submit to authority. Uh, Do you remember back in 1 Thessalonians? I don't know if you do or not, but back in chapter 5, you can turn back there if you want a couple pages, in verse 14, Paul had to address this. He says in verse 14, and we urge you, brothers, he's talking to the same people, admonish the idol. Admonish the idle. There's that word. Uh, One translation says, We exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly. That's a better translation than idleness. Uh, Those who are unruly, those who are walking in a disorderly manner, those who are breaking rank, those who are not submitting to authority. Uh, One translation says that these people are slack in the performance of their duty. They live as a, a, a shirker, somebody who, who just shirks their responsibility off. They don't do anything. They don't, want to, they don't want any responsibility. So I think the ESV missed it when they just translated it idle. Because you don't withdraw from somebody just because they're idle or they're lazy. Uh, New American Standard says one who leads an unruly life or an undisciplined life. Basically, the idea here is they're not working at all. They totally do not think they have to work because either the Lord is coming soon or they've just given up. They don't care anymore. They're no longer submitting to the authority of God's word and believing what God said. And so they they just kind of quit. Now, if you know anything about the Roman culture in which these people grew up in, Thessalonica was a major center then, they tell us that most Romans, the normal Roman citizen did not work. They didn't have a job. They didn't need to work. Guess who did their work? Their slaves. Exactly. They all owned land because they could. The slaves couldn't own land, so they worked for the people that did. And so in the Roman culture, none of the Roman people worked at all. They didn't do anything because they had all these slaves to do it for them. They just would wander around the streets of Rome. As a matter of fact, historians tell us that the Roman, in a Roman town, the marketplace, you would see crowds of people all the time on every corner. didn't matter what hour of the day because they had nothing else to do. They were just out wandering about. And as a matter of fact, it got so bad that they had to try to entertain them. When we were in Italy a couple months ago, we saw the Roman uh, Forum, where they the Colosseum, where they would actually um, have these games with the gladiators. You know, they put pour some soul down there on the on the on the grass pit with a, a wild animal, a bear or a lion who hadn't eaten in weeks. And say, this should be fun. And they would all get food because as the animals either were killed or they would kill them or they just died, they would provide food for everybody. It was a source of entertainment. And it was interesting because I learned that these were all free. It was just free entertainment. And it was a way that the rulers, the Roman rulers, would keep the people kind of ingratiated to them, look at what we're doing for you. You have these free events every week, and you can just come. And, you know, you had different levels. The poor people would sit way, way up in the nosebleed section. The slaves were even welcome to come. And they would sit up in the nosebleed section. And then if you were very rich, you could sit right down and watch everything happen right in front of you. But amazing. And they would provide food for the people and, and drink and everything. And they used it as a form of entertainment for these people because they had nothing else to do. Uh, it, was, it was kind of a, a, a sick place, really. They tried to entertain them, and they got very brutal and gruesome. They just sat around. And this attitude, some of these people were saved, and now they're part of the church. And what happens? They bring that attitude into the church. And they realize, Man, we don't need to work. Why do we have to work? And these were believers with this kind of a, a cultural background, and they thought, we don't have to work. And then they started to understand what Paul was teaching them previously about the coming of Christ, and that just reinforced it. So they just said, hey, why even, if Jesus is really coming back, and this is all going to burn anyway, why do anything here? And they, they basically concluded, we're not going to do a thing. We're just going to sit around. We're just going to wait Paul calls that walking disorderly, walking in idleness, not submitting to authority, breaking rank, neglecting all of your duties, acting like your life is over, and refusing to work for the Lord. Do you think anybody thinks that way today? (laughs) I do. I I think there's people that think that way today. There are people in our society today who claim to be believers. They claim to be trusting in the Lord, and they think everything's going to be over, so why do anything? Um, We don't need to work for the Lord anymore. It's a very interesting problem that they had, and Paul had to address it. And that brings us to the second point here, the principle that affects this problem the principle that affects this problem. Notice what it says in verse 10. If anyone is not willing to work, notice it says not what? Willing to work. Let him not eat. The issue is willingness, not ability. The issue is willingness, not ability. Well, what if you don't have the ability to work? What if you don't have the means to work? What if you're poor? What if you're crippled? What if you're disabled? What if you're sick? Well, take your Bibles and turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 15. Deuteronomy chapter 15. God makes it very clear that the purpose behind our work, why do we work? The purpose behind our work is to provide funds so that we can purchase food, not only for us to eat, not only so that we can have the basic essentials in life, having food and clothing, Paul says and all these things we should be content, but that we also might have what? A little bit extra to meet the needs of the people around us. Um, as you're turning to Deuteronomy 15 Ephesians 4 says the same thing, basically. It says, let the thief, in verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. Why? So that he can feed his face? No. So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. This is why God gave us work. And so here in Deuteronomy, we see in, in chapter 15, it's a great chapter, but look at verses 7 to 8. He says, if any one of you, one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns with your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut the, your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Wow. See, the Bible speaks to people who don't have the ability to work, that can't work. It says their needs should be met. Now, as you do this, as you practice this, I don't know about you, but have you ever been ripped off by somebody trying to help them out? I have several times, right? I mean, I had one guy met me at Stanford University in talked this incredible story about his wife having cancer, or he, was ha- he had cancer, he was dying of cancer, and he didn't know if he should tell his wife or not, and he was a professor at Stanford, he said. He had a briefcase. I met him at McDonald's for coffee, and he just reeled me in big time. Never asked me for any money. And I was able to witness to him and pray with him, and I thought, wow, that was just a wonderful thing. And I get back to my office only to hear the phone ring. I pick it up. Oh, is this Pastor Conrad? Yeah. Oh, we just met at the McDonald's. Yeah. I was wondering, you know, I I was just really contrary about this when we were meeting, but I was wondering if somehow you could help me out. I'm like, well, what's the problem? Because he was going on a trip. His story was he was on his way to the airport, San Jose Airport. And he told me on the phone, he goes, yeah, I'm taking your advice. I'm going to go home and tell my wife that I have this terminal cancer. I'm like, okay, that's good. Are you going to do that before the tree? Yeah, I'm going to do that real now. I've got to do it quickly. But I wanted to get her some flowers. I'm like, okay. Sounds like a good plan. Like, what do you want, you know? And he goes, wow, well, you know, I, I left the house, and I, I don't have any money with me, and I have no credit card or anything. And I was wondering if, if maybe you could loan me $100 so that I could buy my wife a bouquet of flowers. I stopped. I said, well, first of all, I don't have, and I didn't, I don't have $100 with me to give you. And, and part of me is going, you're not really doing this. I mean, I met with you. You're, you're a nice guy. I mean, you're not really going down this path, right? This is just such a weird story. And he, he goes on, well, you know, I just wanted to, you know, kind of ease her pain. I said, well, wait, so you're going to San Jose Airport. You're going on a trip, in, and you have no credit cards. You have no money? That doesn't make any sense, sir. And then he started getting a little more aggressive. Are you telling me you're not going to give me the $100? I said, yeah. I, no, I'm not going to say I'm going to pray about it. Let me call my wife. I said, I'll call you back. I called him. And she said, it's a sham. I said, clearly. So I called the guy back. And I said, you know what? We don't have the money to spare right now. I'm sorry. Uh, no. And he became irate. And I thought, wow, your motivation is really revealed, pal. And you feel feel violated when that happens because you're trusting this person, right? And they just reel you in sometimes. You have to be careful. You have to use common sense. You don't just go around throwing cash out the windows to people. A lot of times if you do that, you're going to be harming those people because they're going to be using your cash for something that will harm them. Alcohol, drugs, whatever it might be. But I'll tell you one thing. It's better to be ripped off than to never care about anybody. I'd rather say, yeah, I got ripped off five times rather than no, I was just hard-hearted and kicked him to the curb. No. It's all the Lord's anyway, right? It's all the Lord's anyway, right? Okay, good. I'll just make sure we're on the same page. Everything you and I have belongs to who? It belongs to the Lord. He is simply loaning us these items, this house, this car, this money. We don't have anything except the Lord gave it to us. The Bible is clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. He says, Paul says, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? We have to be careful what we boast in. Job knew that all too well. The Lord giveth, right? And the Lord taketh away. But what? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so when it says, if you're not willing, that's the issue. It's not about ability. There are people that can't hold a job. But these are people that are not disabled. They're not sick. They're not poor. Uh, they just don't want to work. Period. Period. And so the Bible teaches others should care for the disabled. We should care for those who are not able to do that. But it's very important if we have you know, people who are asking us for money that we use some discernment. Because in all honesty, there's professional panhandlers everywhere. In Redwood City, you see them on every street corner almost. And there's also people out there with genuine needs, right? So that's where you have to ask God for wisdom. Uh, on, on, to discern between the two. James chapter 2, verses 15 to 17 says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says, Go in peace and be warm to be filled. Yet yeah, you don't give them anything. The things that are needed for the body, what good is that? And then he relates it to faith. He says, So faith by itself, if it does not have works, is what? Is dead. It's dead. Um, he makes this very, very clear. God isn't trying to say if, you, if, you, if you, you can't work, you know, you don't eat. No, he's not saying that. But he's saying if you're unwilling to. Uh, 1 John chapter 3, John relates this. He says in verse 17, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes up his heart against him, How does the love of God abide in him? And then he says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. But once again, we have to do that with wisdom. Because our Christianity, our Christian faith is often seen by our willingness, really, to help people when they're in need. That's why people come to a church when they have a need. He's not talking about that. Um, The Bible lays out in Exodus 29, six days you shall labor and do all your work. Lots of people read this passage from Paul and they say, well, Paul must have made this up. The, The Bible doesn't command us to work. Yes, it does, right in that passage. Six days you shall labor. Some of you are trying to work seven. That's not a wise idea. God forbids that. You should have a day of rest. Some of you are saying, well, maybe i only work two. <laughs> That's not a good idea either, right? He, he's laying it out here for us. I mean, any housewife with kids would love to have a day of rest. It seldom comes. They're constantly on duty, but it's God's command. The point is, it's God's command to work and he tells us that over and over again. And the problem here behind 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 is really tough unless you get your heart and your mind wrapped around what God says about work. What God says about work. And we're not to be weary in well-doing. We're not to just shut up and stop and fold up and, well, Christ is coming, let's, let's just focus on something else. No. Ecclesiastes chapter 2 verse 24 and 26 says there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Wow. This also I saw is from the hand of God for apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment for to the one Who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. And he concludes, this also is vanity and striving after the wind. God has given us the ability to work, and if we don't have the ability... if we have a disability, that's okay. There's other people who will care for you. We're to care for one another. So look back at, at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. It's not talking here simply about someone who doesn't work. It's talking about someone who does not want to work. One of the hardest lessons in life, I think, that this current Generation needs to understand is that we need to work. We need to work. When we don't work, we end up getting into a lot of issues, a lot of trouble. The Bible speaks about the dangers of being idle, not working. Ecclesiastes five eighteen. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot, everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and to rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. So if you have retired from your regular job and you've worked hard all your life, you don't, just, you don't, you don't have the privilege really as a believer just to stop doing everything. If you don't have a regular job where you're punching a clock, then, then start volunteering. Find a Christian organization or a church that you can serve in, or a needy group, whatever it might be, but don't just stop doing things. Today we're so caught up with pleasure, 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 all we want to do is just please ourselves, and that's how our mentality is. You know, we work, we toil for that, that retirement. Once we get retirement, then we'll finally be satisfied. No, no. The Bible says you should still work. It's not really a biblical concept. I mean, we forget sometimes the importance of of simple things that God says. Jesus says, let your light shine before men that they may see what? Your good works. (laughs) So whether you're punching the clock or whether you're volunteering or whatever, it takes effort and we're to glorify our Father, which is in heaven. And we have to change our thinking. We, we think today that work is an evil. It's not an evil. It's a good. It's a good that God has provided for us. And there's this talk even in America. Well, you know, we, people work too much. we got to shorten the work week. You know, we should be like Europe or whoever. No, I, I, don't, I don't believe in that. I don't think that's right. I think you're going to really pay a big price for things like that. Every one of us should work until our dying breath. I really believe that. And I think that, you know what, that's what God has called us to do. Now, if you've been able to retire, I know a lot of people who retire and they're busier now than they were when they had their regular job because they're serving the Lord, right? In different ways. And so we don't want to miss this principle. And what is the principle? He says, Well, you know what? If if anyone is not willing to work, not that they can't work, but they can work, but they're unwilling to work. They don't want to work. They're, they're lazy. What's the principle? Let him not eat. Wow. Do you like eating? Do you enjoy a good meal? I enjoy a good meal. I, I enjoy eating obviously. But you know what? Even when it comes to eating, we have to apply biblical principles to this. You know, all the health gurus, all the people that are the health nuts out there telling us, oh, you know what? If you eat right, what? You'll live longer. I say, no, that's not true. That's not true according to the Bible. Hebrews 9.27 says, just as it is appointed for a man to die once, it's appointed to die. The Bible says that God knows the numbers of your days. He's counted them. He knows when you're going to die. You're all going to die on time. Isn't that good news? You're going to die exactly when God wants you to die. Eating a a, a handful of spinach or asparagus or whatever or a a Big Mac is not going to change that. Now, with that, should we good, be good stewards of our bodies? Should we strive to eat health? Yes, we should. The Bible says it's the temple of the Holy Spirit. We should take care of our bodies. I'm not saying be irresponsible. But don't start to believe a lot of this stuff you hear because it simply it goes against the, the biblical principles of God's word. We all die on time. The other one I hear from, from people who are into... Health stuff is, well, you know what? Sleep is directly related to how you eat. Have you ever heard that? I and mean, we bought it hook, line, and sinker. Oh, yeah, that's true. I don't believe it is true. And you say, well, why do you say that? Because Ecclesiastes 5.2, it says, The sleep of a working man is sweet, whether he eats little or much. Wow. That's the direct opposite of what you hear. Now, once again, I'm not saying be irresponsible. You don't want to eat a 30-ounce porterhouse and then try to go to sleep. That's probably not a wise thing to do, right? Maybe you've tried that and it doesn't work too well. And and just to be clear, there's a lot of... uh, What's in this water? Little friend, yeah. Um, Yeah. There's a lot of of cultists, there's a lot of New Age thinking in this whole nutrition deal. There really is. And you have to be careful. I'm not saying it doesn't have value, because I believe it does. But when you start to introduce biblical principles, I think that trumps these ideas that they have. God is not against people who don't have the ability to work. He wants them taken care of. But he's talking about people who have the ability to work, but they will not work. They're unwilling. They're rebellious towards working. So we see the problem which existed. We see the principle. Now the last thing here today, we'll get this far. The practice of other believers toward those with this problem. How do you in the church treat people who are part of this problem? They're not working. They're unwilling to work. They're they're basically... just figure, you know what, I'll just live off everybody else. Um, And you think, well, is this really a major problem? Do you really believe that? Well, look at what he says. Look at what he says in verse 6. And he he says it very uh, um, boldly. This isn't an option that Paul has given them. He's not saying, oh, a creative alternative, you could do this. No, he says, Paul says, you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. Or walking in a disorderly manner. They're a believer. They're your brother, your sister in Christ. But Paul says, keep away from them. That's very strong. In verse 14, he says, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, he says, take note of that person and have what? Nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. The Greek word here, translated to keep away from, stelisti is from the, the Greek verb stello, And it, it means basically to set in place, to appoint to a position. But what's interesting is when it's used in the middle voice, meaning in and of itself, nothing else affects it, <clears throat> when it's used in the middle voice and it's followed by a preposition like a po here, that you keep away from, it means to avoid. It means to withdraw yourself from that person's presence. It's not used a lot in the New Testament. It's used in 2 Corinthians 8.20, where he basically says, we take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. When Paul says we take, it's the same word. It's the same word there. The King James says, avoiding this. The New American Standard says, taking precaution. See, the idea of avoiding or withdrawing from someone within the body of Christ is not a common thing for us to wrap our mind around. Especially in the day and age we live of this tolerant society. You know, you tolerate everybody and every, everything. Everybody wants to be tolerant no matter what the reason, you know, this is not going to be an acceptable teaching. I mean, no, nobody really likes to hear this. Are you telling me to withdraw from someone? Yes. If, if they're practicing their Christian walk in the prescribed manner that Paul says, yes. The answer is you withdraw from them. You, you pull away from them. I was praying this week that people wouldn't think I'm angry at people. I'm not trying to tell people to be mean to each other and not be in fellowship with one another. And yet there's something here that I think is being ignored in churches today. There are times when we need to stay away from those who call themselves believers but are walking in idleness. They're walking in a disorderly manner. They're walking in a way that's not submitting to authority. In this case, they're not wanting to work. They're saying, no, I'm not going to work. I remember one time I was down in Redwood City. I, was, I think I was going to Costco, and I was on uh, a Broadway there, and the red light was, I don't know, there was some accident on the freeway, so the traffic was just backed up. And if you've ever been down that way, you see the homeless people. They, they gather there, and then they'll go up and down the median strip, well, there was one guy going walking up and down this meeting. And we were just stuck there, right? And people had given him the money. So, I mean, everybody's pretty much tapped out. They're tired of him walking up to the car. But he just kept on doing it. And so finally he made his way back to my car. I was parked quite a ways back. And I remember rolling down the window, and I said, Hey, you know what? Um, can I ask you an honest question? And he goes, Sure. And I go, Actually, I'll give you two bucks if you answer my question, honestly. He goes, sure. So I gave him two bucks. And I go, is this worth it for you out here? What do you mean? I'm like, well, I've seen you down here quite a bit. You know, I mean, I'm just wondering. It's kind of warm today. You're out here pretty much every day doing the same thing. Is it worth your time? He just chuckled. He goes, what do you mean? Sure. It meets my needs. He goes, then he went on. It wasn't too bright, obviously.
1: He went on. He said, yeah,
0: you know what? Beats, beats holding down a job. And it's all tax free. I make more, more money than my. And he just starts like exaggerating the facts clearly, but he's bragging about how much he's making out panhandling, doing no work at all. And I asked him, Did you ever think of getting a job? He goes, Why would I do that? He goes, I wouldn't be getting a raise, that's for sure. And he walked away. I thought, Wow. You know, we we buy into this idea that all the homeless people are homeless because they're they're mentally ill or they're on drugs or whatever. That's really not true. And there was a recent study that proved that probably a little less than a third of people on the streets have any mental illness at all. Some of them do. But a lot of them are there because they choose to be there. And so we have to be careful, is what my point is we have to know when to entertain these people to help them out and when we're being taken advantage of see the one who walks disorderly isn't the one who can't work because he's disabled it's paul is saying no this person just will not work they will not work And whenever anybody does that, Paul says, when they rebel against authority, they're not doing what God's word tells them to do in this thing, relation to work, but really in any part of their life. The Bible says that you should pull away from that person as a fellowship. Why? That they might be ashamed. They might be ashamed. Because the way we work, wherever we're, we're working at, is what? Is bearing our testimony. When you go to work, um, you know, I really believe as a Christian, if you're working in an organization where there are non-Christians, you better be outworking all the unbelievers. That's what you're called to do as a believer. <clears throat> you're to work harder than the non-Christians. Because your work is a testimony of Christ. There should never be any criticism as a Christian that you're, oh, you're a poor worker. You're not a good worker. We should work our tails off of the Lord. Not watching the clock. Not watching whether the boss is looking. No, we're, we're serving the Lord with our job. We're serving the Lord with all of our hearts. And that testimony is powerful to people. In a world that doesn't know how to work. It's good To have people working for you that have a good work ethic. That understand you can trust them. You tell them to do something. You don't have to stand there over their shoulder and make sure they're not taking another break or whatever. No, they're getting it done. They're doing it. Because we believe work is good. And that we need to work. It's part of God's plan for us to work. And we're going to work while it is day. Because you know what? The night is coming and we won't be able to work. So we we need to remind ourselves of that. But I want to ask you this question. Does the Bible really teach that we should withdraw, that we should pull away from people within a fellowship? Well, there's five cases throughout Scripture where this is true. And the first one, if you turn to Romans chapter 16, when do we withdraw from another brother or sister in Christ? When do you withdraw from them? When do you say, I'm not going to have fellowship with you anymore? Romans 16, verses 17 to 18, tells us, in the case of doctrinal errors, in the case of doctrinal errors, Paul says in verse 17, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those, listen, who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. He says, avoid them. Avoid them. Verse 18, for such persons do not serve the Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Here's somebody within the body of Christ who is causing division. They're causing offenses contrary to doctrines that they've been taught. These are doctrinal errors. And what does the Bible say? The Bible says, don't try to convince them they're right or they're wrong or cozy up to them. No, it says stay away from them. Stay away from them. A couple weeks ago, I got a call. I was here Wednesday studying, and I got a call, and somebody from a local church, a conservative church, San Jose, and they said, Well, I, I get your opinion. I said, Okay. Well, you know. I talked to my pastor about this, and there's these people that come around our, our neighborhood, um, whether they're Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses, whatever the case was, and uh, my pastor says I shouldn't welcome them into my home. And I just didn't think that was right. I, you know, I'm trying to reach out to these people and... Uh, uh, you know, I, I just don't agree with my pastor, and I wanted to get a third opinion. What do you think? And I had to tell him, well, you know I think your pastor's right. I think your pastor's right. And they said, well, you know, you know, if we don't reach out to them, who will? I don't want to offend them. I don't want to hurt them in any way. I want to love them, love them, love them. And I said this. If you love them, then you will not tolerate their doctrinal error. You will not tolerate it. They were denying, obviously, that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. That's a pretty big doctrinal error. Um, we're not talking about what color the paint is or anything like that. We're talking about doctrinal errors. We're talking about errors that cause divisions, offenses contrary, which means the exact opposite to what the doctrine of God's word is. Doctrinal error. The Bible says stay away from people like that. And there are people like that who pray on churches. They come into churches and they try to spread their form of truth amongst the people. Beware of that. I mean, there are people on TV, on media, on the radio even, who are teaching doctrinal error. Wow, well, I like the way you teach. Well, The Bible says you should avoid them. You should avoid them. You're not to tolerate it not to have anything to do with them. That's the idea, avoid them. That's what God's Word says very clearly. Go to Titus chapter 3. There's a second case here where we should withdraw from other believers in case of doctrinal error. But secondly... In the case of divisive attitudes, divisive attitudes. I read this this morning for the worship team because I think it's important that we understand this. It was just in my mind, but in Titus chapter 3, verses 9 to 11, it says avoid foolish controversies, avoid genealogies, avoid dissensions and quarrels about the law. Why? Why would we avoid these, Paul? Because they're unprofitable. And worthless. In other words, guard your time with people that want to be a, an abuser of it. They want to talk about silly things. Well, how big is God? Is God so powerful he could create a rock that he couldn't move it? Silly question. I mean, when you stop and think about it... Um, You know all those questions. We're to 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 avoid foolish questions. You know we live in a world today. Well, there's never there's not a stupid question. Yes, there are. There are stupid questions. The Word of God says there's stupid questions, and it says when people ask stupid questions, avoid them. They're unprofitable. It's a waste of time. Doesn't mean you have to be rude. Or unloving. It's just saying, you know what? It's not going to lead to anything. It's just all about getting people upset and getting mad and and fighting each other. In verse 10, it says, As for a person who stirs up division stirs up division. This is not doctrinal error. Interestingly, though, although the word heretic is used here, the English word heretic is not talking about doctrinal heresy. It's talking about a person who is fighting you. They're resisting you. As for such a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, it says have nothing to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and they're sinful and they're And it's self-condemned. There's a difference between asking a good question, isn't there? And and asking a question is just going to lead into an argument. What do you do with someone who's constantly being divisive? They just won't let something go. They're constantly harping on the same thing. They're, They're immature. They're pushing it. They're pushing it. It's not an essential thing but they're just making everybody around them miserable over this disagreement. Basically, you say, okay, goodbye, brother. I'm not going to talk to you anymore. That's hard. That's hard. But that's what's needed. The third thing here, in case of deliberate immorality... Not just doctrinal error, not just divisive attitudes, but deliberate immorality. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9 to 13. We're looking at five basic ways here why, reasons why we should withdraw from another brother or sister in Christ. In the case of deliberate immorality. Notice I said deliberate immorality. There's a difference when this immorality is openly being conducted and practiced in a person's life and there's no desire whatsoever to get right with the Lord, they're flaunting it, you could say. They're, they're holding on to it. They're not letting it go. They're not sorry. The Bible says don't have anything to do with people like that. In 1 in Corinthians chapter 5, there's an example here, and we have here a very serious thing that happened in the church, a, a case of incest. In the church membership. And it's well known among the congregation. And he, he, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5, nine. he says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. So he says, I'm not talking about people in the, the world who are sexually immoral. Obviously, if you're going to witness to them, you're going to have to associate with them. He's talking about people within the confines of the church. He says in verse 11, But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother or sister, by implication, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater or reviler or drunkard or swindler. So it's not just sexually immoral people, but he gives a whole list there. He says, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person among you. So we, this, this affects the way we evangelize, doesn't it? I don't, I don't hold a high standard for someone who doesn't know Christ, who isn't walking with Christ. As a matter of fact, they're probably going to drop F-bombs during our conversation. You know what? It doesn't faze me. I don't say, oh, please stop using such foul language. My virgin ears have never heard such. No. I mean, I've worked with enough police officers. I mean, they, You know, they say things all the time that are unbecoming to the Lord. And a lot of times they do it to get a response out of you. when they don't get the response, then they they start to lighten up. See, we can't hold a standard for unbelievers that we're holding for people in the church. It doesn't work that way. They're going to act immorally. They're going to be idolaters and revilers and drunkards and swindlers. That's what they're given to do. And unless you think we're we're so righteous, Titus says, you know what, and and so such were some of you. (laughs) Right? We all went down that path. As a matter of fact, in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, Paul warns us. He says, brother, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are, listen, spiritual, should restore him in a spirit of what? Gentleness. Gentleness. And then he says this, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You know, the the key is, if you're messed up by sexual sin, it's just got a hold of you, Um, it doesn't matter what it is, okay? It doesn't matter. And you know that you've sinned against a holy God, and you want help, and you want to get out of that lifestyle, whatever it might be, listen, we're here to help you. We love you, and God will forgive you. He can restore you, and you can be healed From that. But if you decide to just keep on going down that path on some sexual sin, and you don't care what anybody thinks, especially the Lord, and you're not sorry, I'm sorry. But as a church, basically, we will not have any fellowship with you, period. That's what we're instructed to do. And that is hard. That's hard amongst your church family. Think how hard it is amongst your own blood family. It's difficult. But when there's deliberate, rebellious, sexual immorality, no desire to get straightened out, no desire to stop, no desire to get right with the Lord, you just keep on going down that path. It says very clearly, don't have anything to do with them. That's what it says. I think that's why... Even within the church, there's a lot of people that keep quiet. They don't want anybody to know about it. (laughs) Because they know what will come. We'll look at the fourth thing here. Doctrinal errors, divisive attitudes, deliberate immorality. The fourth thing, in the case of determined rebellion. Determined rebellion. Matthew 18 covers this. The church discipline passage. Um, Some people, when they are confronted, um, they already have been, they are already determined, basically, to rebel against any advice, against anything that God says, against anything that the church says. It doesn't matter. They're going to go down that path. You've all had the experience. Somebody comes to you and wants to get your advice on something, only to see them walk away in an angry fashion. Why? Because you didn't tell them what they wanted to hear. You were true to the word of God right? And, and so this speaks to that in Matthew 18. And so some people are, when they're confronted, they're already in determined rebellion against God. And you know what? You're not going to be able to do anything about that. That's something God has to do in their own heart. But it doesn't mean we don't confront them. Um, someone confronted by two or three, even the scripture seems to indicate, are determined not to do anything about it. In other words, you don't just go, Matthew points out, but then because they don't listen to you, you take someone else. And then a third person. There's a lot of examples of this. And unfortunately, the church of Jesus Christ doesn't do much about this. Or they do it wrongly, (laughs) as far as church... Discipline goes without love and without kindness, without a desire to restore. The purpose of church discipline is restoration of the brother or sister under discipline. It's not just to kick them out of the church. We have to remind ourselves of that. Sometimes you have to have patience with the process in church discipline. There's some, we can go around the room probably, we're there's issues that have not been resolved. Sometimes you go to people and you try to make things, and they don't respond. And you can't do anything about that. The Bible says that it's, it's very, you know, that's the situation, that's what it is, but you did your part. and the, he, he says in Matthew 18, that's when you take two or three, and if it still hasn't worked, then you know what? You tell it to the church. And if it still hasn't resolved itself, then what do you do? You treat them as an unbeliever that's 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 difficult determined rebellion people who are going to say they want to be part of the church, but in their hearts they're rebelling against god they're rebelling against all authority. Well, the last one here brings us to the text three six second Thessalonians three six in the case of disorderly conduct, this is what he's talking about. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness or in a disorderly manner, and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. That leads me to say, after examining all those cases where the Bible says we should pull away from a brother or sister in Christ and not having to do with them, we should avoid, we should... Withdraw from them, have no company with them. I really have concluded that the person in Second Thessalonians three has a clear refusal to respond to the authority and the command of the Lord concerning work. That's the context. They don't want to have anything to do with it. They don't want to hear what Paul has to say about work and remind them, hey, this is the gift of God. They don't care. They're, they're going to continue to leech off people. They're going to continue to beg. They're going to continue to try to get through life with minimal effort. They're going to do the least amount possible and get the most stuff for the least amount. That's their mentality. And, and these folks are everywhere. I talked to a guy one time. I was asking for a... Uh, referral for a certain business and i said yeah i, I noticed you know this is certain company they have a little fish symbol and he goes yeah, brother he goes don't even pay attention to that i go what do you mean he goes i know the owner of that company they're far from christian and they'll rip you off as long as the day is long i'm like really i said why he goes because it gets some business it gets some business they don't care I mean, we're we're too naive sometimes. We're just way, way too naive. They don't, these people here in, in 2 Thessalonians don't want to have anything to do with work. They're just going to take advantage of people. Not because they can't work, mind you, the Bible addresses that. But because they won't work. Um, I remember when I was with Calvary Chapel in Indio, I went to several pastors' conferences over at Calvary Chapel where Chuck Smith taught, and one of his associate pastors was by a guy by the name of Pastor Romaine. And I think he, he used to be in the, uh, I think he was a marine Corps drill, drill surgeon or something. I mean, this guy just had a major attitude with anybody. It's just a little short guy. But I mean, boy, when he spoke, you listened. And if you weren't listening, he'd, he'd let you know. You know, um, I remember one time I went to a, a conference, and it was associate pastors, And, you know, we're in the room, and we're all a bunch of young guys, you know, youth pastors and worship pastors and stuff. And he gets up in front, and this little guy gets behind. You can barely see over the pulpit. And he goes, how many of you here here call yourself pastor? You know, so we kind of look around. We go like this, you know. I mean, that's what we do, right? He goes, well, here you're nothing. You're scum. you got to earn that right here. Matter of fact, you earn it by cleaning toilets. And maybe after six months of cleaning those toilets, if you do a good job, we might promote you, not to pastor. I mean, he, he just really had a high, but it was good. It was very good. Pastors need to hear that kind of stuff, right? I remember him talking about men in their men's ministry who lost their jobs, and they complained. They would come to Pastor oh, Pastor, I, lost, I got fired, and, and I don't have a job. He goes, what are you talking about you don't have a job? You got a job. No, I don't. I lost it. He goes, You know what your job is? You get up at 8 o'clock and you start looking for a job. And you do it to 5 o'clock. That's what your new job is. <laughs> and that's true. See, we, we forget all that. Because we've got all these other things that kowtow to people. And, and just kind of make everything very, very, very easy. <clears throat> we need to come back to what the Bible says about work. And understand clearly that this is a gift from God. When we have a job, we should be blessing the Lord, thanking the Lord that he has given us a job and that we get to work. And if we're done with our job, if we've retired, praise God that we have time throughout the day, that we can volunteer, that we can help others, and that we can get busy doing the things of the Lord. You know, we don't believe the lie that, well, you know what, I put in my day's work, and now I just play. That's all I do, I play. That's not good. That's not good. Next week we'll finish off the last two, but let's close in a word of prayer and ask the Lord to bless our time of fellowship across the way. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the gift of work. Thank you that we're able to apply the skills and the abilities that you've given to us. And Lord, it's a hard message to teach in today's um, attitude of tolerance today with everybody uh, thinking they... um, don't have to earn anything, that everything should be given to them. And unfortunately, our government doesn't help us with this. They're constantly giving people things. And so people don't want to work. There's no need for them to work. But thats we see what it's doing to our society. It's turning it upside down. And Lord, we pray that you would reach their hearts, that you would just give us that desire to go to work and, and to do it for your glory. Whether we like the job or not, it's irrelevant. But we're doing it to serve you. We're doing it so we can reflect your glory, your righteousness, your grace to those around us. Lord, I pray for anyone here, even in our own congregation, who may be dealing with issues in their own life. Lord, maybe it's their own job that they can't stand. They hate going to work. Lord, I pray that you change their attitude. Lord, that you would allow them to embrace it as a gift from you. That, Lord, you can use that in their life to contour them uh, more into the image conform them more into the image of christ and lord look at the outreach aspect of work that we can reach out to our co-workers that we can be an example of god's grace and glory uh, through our own efforts of work and lord we pray for those who may not who who have the desire to work but don't have a job right now we pray that you would provide for them and that they would be busy working to work (laughs) looking for that job and and lord that you would open up the right door at the right time and, Father, we thank you for those, even within our own congregation, who have worked a full life, and now they, they can enjoy the aspect of not going to a job, that they can retire. But, Lord, that they would not take advantage of that. Lord, that they would be able to embrace a retirement as, as a way that they can really serve Christ even more without the constraints of an hourly uh, day-to-day job. And so, Lord, we thank you for all these things. And, Lord, most of all, we know that the most important thing is whether we know you as our Lord and Savior, whether you've changed us, you know, you've transformed us. If there's anyone here this morning or in the hearing of my voice that who has yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, I pray today might be the day for them that they would cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me from my sin. It's in Christ, in Christ alone, I put my faith and trust. Lord, please forgive me make me one of your children, save me from my sin. That's a prayer that when it's prayed from a sincere heart that God will answer that prayer. He will change you. He will transform you. He will forgive you of your sin, past, present, and future. And he will make you into the person that he desires you to be. So, Father, we pray also for our fellowship across the way that you would bless the food of our bodies, bless our conversation. And, Lord, we just thank you for a wonderful morning. pray that you would uh, um, just bless the rest the remainder of our day. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.